The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Unfinished. The business of the church is unfinished. The business of the church started the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and that business continues today, and it's yet unfinished. The proclamation of the gospel to the nations continues, and that's why we call this series Unfinished. I'm going to read in Acts chapter 26, Paul has given us testimony to a king. The king's name is Agrippa. And as we read about King Agrippa, the governor is Festus. And so beginning in Acts chapter 26, verse 24, when Paul was saying this in his defense, what he was talking about is the resurrection of Jesus. He's talking about the fact that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And when Paul had said this in his defense, Festus cried out in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I utter words of sober truth, for the king knows about these matters. I speak to the king also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. It's not been done in secret. And then he looks at Agrippa, the king, and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa has just heard about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul turns, he fixes his gaze upon him. He looks at him and he says, King, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa's response to Paul, verse 28, if you write in your Bible, circle it, underline it. He's Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Paul, you keep talking. I'm almost persuaded. But history never records a time when he did. Father, as we look at this text, we look at this one who was almost persuaded to trust in the Savior. We've heard Austin's testimony as we look at the Word, as we listen to the things of life. I just pray, Neil, that you would teach us. Teach us about ourselves. Teach us about you. In the name of Jesus, amen. We began our study several months ago in the book of Acts. We actually begin back in September, Terry. My video, my thing has gone out, so you're going to have to walk us through this. Begin in uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. And so we see a basic outline of the book of Acts here. The book of Acts can easily be divided, the work of God in Jerusalem, the work of God in Judea, Samaria, the work of God in the uttermost parts of the earth. The first eight chapters of Acts is about the church in Jerusalem. The church is birthed at the day, on the day of Pentecost, and the church it stays in Jerusalem. But, but then in Acts chapter 7, an interesting thing happens. We meet the first martyr of the church. The first person martyred for his faith is a gentleman named Stephen. And it took the death of Stephen for the church to be scattered from Jerusalem. One of the authors I read said, if you really want to start a revival, Stephen was one of the deacons. If you really want to start a revival, what you need to do is kill a deacon, and then you'll have revival started. <coughs> Excuse me. So Acts 1.8 is an outline. On the next, on the next slide, Terry, it says in Acts 8.4, therefore, it's after Stephen's death, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And so beginning in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, all the way through Acts 13.1, what we see is the church goes into the regions surrounding Jerusalem. So you shall receive power, be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Now it's expanding to Judea, Samaria, through the death of Stephen. And then finally, what we see is that Paul and Barnabas are laid aside so that they can go out on the first missionary journey. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas, 
they sent them away, sending them away on the very first missionary journey that the church ever experienced. And so Acts chapter 1-8 provides us an outline of the book. It begins with the church being birthed in Jerusalem, then expanding to Judea, Samaria, then into the uttermost parts of the world, the nations. It's a monumental task. To reach the uttermost parts of the earth is a monumental task. It's an unfinished business as of today. It's the reason why we send and support missionaries around the world. It's the reason we support pastors in our sister churches literally around the world. It's the reason we currently have teams in Ukraine, Estonia, Indonesia. As we sit here, they are there. Soon, the team you saw here is headed to Rwanda. You're going to meet a group headed to Japan soon. And what we find is that we literally have families around the world. It's the reason we support and have missionaries supported. We support 32 missionaries in 19 different nations that call TBC home or supported by TBC. We have folks in, in Peru and Paraguay and Mexico and Brazil for many, many years in the Middle East and the Philippines, Malaysia, Germany, France, on and on, sister churches in Ukraine, sister churches in Rwanda. And sometimes you may wonder why we do all that. It's because the work of the church is unfinished. We're seeking to fulfill what Jesus instructed us to do in Acts chapter 1 8. The, the, the work is undone. The work is unfinished. It's unfinished in our Jerusalem. It's unfinished in our Jerusalem. We still have work to do right here in Temple, Texas and in Central Texas. In your neighborhood, the work is unfinished. There are many who don't know Jesus yet. It, it, the work is unfinished at Scott and White and at Wilson Art and at Walmart and at HEB, at Fort Hood, at TISD and BISD and Academy ISD and Rogers and Troy and Colleen at CTCS and Providence and all these places, the work is unfinished. It's unfinished in my neighborhood. It's unfinished in your neighborhood. It's unfinished in your family. It's unfinished in my family. It's unfinished among my friends. It's unfinished among your friends. The work of the spread of the gospel is an unfinished work. Now, the good news is this. You and I have the privilege to partake of that. You and I have the privilege to be those who share the gospel with others. In fact, Max Licato writes this. He says, I don't know which is more incredible that God packages the bread of life and the wrapper of a country carpenter or that he has given us the keys to the delivery truck. I don't know which is more incredible. It seems to me they're both pretty risky. The carpenter did his job or we do in ours. I mean, we have the privilege to share the gospel, the good news, who the bread of life is with the people around us. We call that our sphere of influence. You have a sphere of influence. I have a sphere of influence. If you've been at TBC for any time, what we say is you have a sphere of influence where God has placed you to make an impact for Jesus. He's placed you as a missionary in the family you're in, the neighborhood you're in, the job you're on, et cetera, et cetera. So you have the opportunity to make an impact for Jesus. That's why we call our backyard Bible schools impact. That's one of the reasons we do that, because we all want to make an impact. We want our homes to be lighthouses for the Savior. The need is great. Our world currently has about 7 billion people in it. If you look ahead of you on the screen, you'll see a current world population chart or map or whatever you call that. It's the statistics. You can Google it up. Take a look at it if you want to. Not right now, but a little later. But, but as you see it, our world keeps expanding. Here's one of the most amazing things. In our world today, there will be 350,000 babies born. Wrap your head around that. 350,000 babies will be born today. If you do the math, and I think even my LSU math is correct here, uh, there are 14,600 babies born every hour. 
243 babies born every minute. There are four babies born every second that ticks on the clock. Four babies, four babies, four babies. If you look at the next line, it talks about death. There are 153,000 people that die every year in our world. and 6,400 people in the hour we will sit here will pass away on our planet. That means every minute we're here, 107 people die. Every second we sit here, two people die. Four born to die. Four born to die. Four born to die. Four born to die. The work remains unfinished. But we have a privilege to take Christ to those who have been born, and it's too late for those who died. So it's both a privilege and a responsibility. What's your role? I can't wrap my head around seven billion anythings. And the reason we can't is because it's such an enormous number, but you can pray for your neighbor. You can share Christ with your BFF. You can talk about the Savior with your family. I love Austin's testimony at the end of it when he says to me, evangelism was torture. Now I talk about Jesus all the time. And so what we see is we have the privilege to say, Gary, where are you gone with this this morning? What are you doing? Well, I'm convinced if you'll journey with me through these two chapters, chapters 25 and 26, what we're going to see is that the gospel was always utmost on Paul's mind and Paul's heart. When he comes before Festus the governor and Agrippa the king, He talks more about Jesus than he talks about himself. That utmost in Paul's mind, he has an audience with the king, and the one thing he wants that king to know about is the resurrection of Jesus. And so he has the privilege to stand before one who literally can give him life or death. He stands before one who controls his future, and he talks about Jesus. And so as I look at these chapters and I look at all these numbers you saw on the chart and I look at the things happening in our world and our life, the reality of it is if we are going to be like, like the, the model that Paul is, then we're going to see the gospel should be utmost in our hearts and our minds. He's been under arrest for two years. He's, but his focus is not upon himself. It's upon our Savior. So first of all, he begins his defense before Festus. If, if you look at verse 1, Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province three days later, went to Jerusalem from Caesarea. We ended our study last week by seeing that Felix had been the governor. Festus is now appointed governor. Paul has been under house arrest for two years. Well, if you're going to be a governor in a province of Israel, the one place you're going to go to, the geopolitical religious center of Israel, is Jerusalem. And so you're going to hightail it to Jerusalem to make sure that the Jewish leaders are on board with your plans and that they know who you are. And so that's what he does. He leaves a beautiful little city of Caesarea, which is located on the Mediterranean, beautiful place. And as he leaves that place, he goes to Jerusalem to meet with the, with the muckety-mucks there. He, he knows he needs the Jews in Jerusalem to be on his side if he's going to rule in that area. And so the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews, they brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him. Now, when, when Festus received the reins from Felix, certainly he told him about this hot political prisoner he has in jail. He tells him about, about Paul. We'll see that Festus knew the story. And so he goes to Jerusalem, and the, the, the thing that is utmost, two years later, Paul's been in prison for two years. Two years later, the thing utmost on the minds of the Jewish leaders is Paul. You know why? Because Christianity is spreading. Because Jews are trusting in Jesus. Because throughout the Roman Empire, the church has been birthed. 
It's, it's gone from 150 in upper Rome to, to literally tens of thousands of people throughout the Roman Empire. And the Jewish people are mad. They're not excited. They're mad. In fact, in the previous chapter, it said this guy is a plague. He's a pest. He's, a, he's the head ruler. Or he's, a, he's a leader of a cult. And Paul says, no, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just telling them about everything the Old Testament scriptures teach about the coming Messiah. And I'm talking about the resurrection and they don't buy it. So Festus goes to Jerusalem, he meets with the Jews, and they, they request, look at verse 3, a, a concession against Paul that he might be brought to Jerusalem. So they go to Festus and say, hey, we want him tried in Jerusalem. We want him to go to Jerusalem. Look at, look at the parenthesis in verse 3. At the same time, they were setting an ambush to kill Paul on his way to Jerusalem. Well, Festus flexes his muscle, and when he flexes his muscle, he says uh, he, he, he knew, he had to know that, that there had been a plot previous to kill Paul. So Festus uh, flexes his political muscle and says, no, uh, I, he's in custody in Caesarea. I, I'm going to go back and talk to him. I'm not bringing him here. You bring men to me, verse 5, verse 6. After he'd spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went to Caesarea. On the next day, he took seat in his tribunal. He ordered Paul to be brought in. So now Paul is brought before the governor. He's brought before the governor, and as he arrived, the Jews who had come from Jerusalem, these are the people that wanted Paul killed. They're still mad at him two years later. There's hostility towards Paul, towards the gospel. Uh, they bring many charges, uh, many, they brought many and serious charges against Paul, the end of verse 7, which they could not prove. Do you see it? I mean, look at the end of verse 7. So these guys are up there, they're wagging their fingers. Let me tell you about this guy, Paul. Let, let me tell you about what he's done. Let, let me tell you how, he, how, how he's preaching this word. And, and let me tell you how all these people are believing. But here's the reality. This guy, Paul, he, he's a problem. And the problem is they have no evidence. They have no witnesses. Therefore, they have no case. They have no evidence. They have no witnesses. Therefore, they have no case. They couldn't prove any of it. The end of verse 7. And so here's Paul on trial before Festus, and, and the, these folks come and say, this Paul guy, he's awful. He's doing all these bad things. Nothing is working. Because they have no evidence. They have no witnesses. They have no case. Now, Festus in the horns of dilemma. Here's his problem. He, he really has nothing to charge Paul with or against. He has no charges. But if he releases Paul, he risks the ire of the Jewish leaders. And if that gets back to Rome, then his job is in jeopardy. So he's got a political hot potato, if you will. Here's Paul, who's innocent, and he knows it. But here are the Jews demanding his death, and he knows he's innocent. If he turns Paul loose, the Jews turn on him. Rome hears about it. He loses his cush job in Caesarea. If he keeps calling Paul in prison, he's got another issue because everybody in Jerusalem wants him dead. And if Rome hears about it, he's got a prisoner who's in prison and really has no reason to be there. He gets in trouble with his bosses. The horns of a dilemma. What to do? What to do? And so that's where Festus is. He had the same dilemma the previous governor Felix had. And uh, he's not sure what to do. So there's unsubstantiated accusations against Paul. There are no witnesses. There's no evidence. Therefore, there is no case. In verse 9, Festus, wishing to favor the Jews, looked at Paul and he said, uh, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on those charges? Well, Paul knew he had as much chance of a fair trial in Jerusalem as a bowl of bluebell would have in front of me right now. 
We're thinking about going to Alabama on our vacation in a few weeks. I mean, he knew if he even made it to Jerusalem, there's no hope of a trial. So, so, so he looks and says, Paul, you willing to go to Jerusalem? Well, Paul's response in verse 9 or verse 10 is, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, that's you right now, where I should be tried. I, I've done no wrong to these Jews. There's been no evidence. There have been no witnesses. And he said, if I'm a wrongdoer and committed anything worthy of death, they want him capital punishment here. He said, then I don't refuse to die. But if none of these things are true, no one can hand me over to them. And then he plays the trump card. Bam. In front of Festus, he's a Roman citizen. He has what's called provatio Caesar. That's the provision of Caesar. A Roman citizen who was on trial, which could result in death, could appeal to Caesar. So look at what he does at the end of verse 11. I appeal to Caesar. Bam! The trump card comes. The trump card comes. Next week, I'm going to be preaching. We're going to look at this. Uh, Paul's headed to Rome. He gets on a ship going to Rome. We're going to call it uh, rounding third and headed to Rome. I, I mean, that's what he's going to do. And he's headed to Rome because of this appeal. He says, I, I want to see Caesar. By the way, here's an interesting tidbit of history. Guess who Caesar was at this time? Caesar's a, a name for the king. It's a family name. The Caesar at this time in Rome was a guy named Nero. Nero early on was a pretty good guy. Or de- not, not, Let me back up. He wasn't a good guy. He, he, was, he, was, uh, he wasn't insane yet. He wasn't trying to kill Christians yet. He ultimately does. But at this time, Paul appeals to him, and he's not all that bad of a king. He goes south pretty quickly from this time on. So he throws down the trump card. Now, Festus really has a problem. That problem is found in verses 25 through 27. King Agrippa comes to town. King Agrippa wants to meet Paul. He's obviously heard about Paul. Uh, King Agrippa brings with him his queen. Her name is Bernice. She also happens to be his sister. They're not from Arkansas, but close by. I mean, what we know about Agrippa and Bernice is they had an incestuous relationship. She had been married to someone. She divorced him. She went to live with her brother. They have an incestuous relationship. She eventually marries Titus, who's the general that sacks Rome, but she can't stand being away from her brother. And so, I mean, this this makes Jerry Springer look tame. (laughs) I mean, this is nasty stuff. That's who Paul's standing in front of. So Agrippa comes to town with his sister, his wife, his sister, his wife, the queen, and, uh, and the, he wants to hear about Paul. He wants to meet Paul. He wants to see Paul. And so he stands there, and Festus is filling him in on about who Paul is. And so in verse 25, he says, I found he committed nothing worthy of death, and since he appealed to the emperor, I've decided to send him there. Yet I have nothing definite to write about him to my lord. Therefore, I brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I might have something to write. Festus is saying, you know, I'm supposed to send this guy to Rome because he's done all this bad stuff and the Jews want him dead, but I don't have anything to write about. I can't write the charges against him because I don't know what they are. No evidence, no witnesses, no case. But he appeals to Rome, so to Rome he's got to go. And Festus, not wanting to upset the Jews and wanting to protect Paul, knowing he's an innocent man, is caught in a dilemma. What do I do? Well, let me 
pause for a second and make two applications and we'll go to the next chapter. Here's the first application. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. So Gary, what are you talking about? Well, here's, here's a, uh, here you have to switch for me. Go to the next one. Jesus is speaking this. He's talking, telling his disciples, but before all this, they'll seize you and persecute you. They'll hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. You'll be brought before kings and governors on account of my name. Now, when Jesus was talking, he was talking to disciples. Paul wasn't there. Paul became a believer later, but he told his disciples, a group of fishermen, you're going to represent me before kings and governors. You imagine them laughing? <laughs> Us? Uneducated country bumpkins from Galilee? And, and then when Paul got saved in the, in the book of Acts, he saved on the Damascus Road, and, and Ananias is a guy who's going to, lay hands on Paul, and Paul's blindness is going to be lifted. And, and God says to Ananias, go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and before kings and before the sons of Israel. So God's promise to Paul is, because of your newfound faith in me, uh, one day you're going to stand before kings. So now we're all away some years later, decades later actually, in Paul's life, and where is he standing? Before a what? King. God always keeps his word. When he makes a promise, it comes true. He's made a promise to us about eternal life. He's made a promise to us about abundant life. He's made a promise to us about peace that surpasses understanding. He's made a promise to us that he'll never leave nor forsake us. He's made a promise to us that he'll give rest to the weary. He's made a promise to us that when we are in the midst of trouble, we need not worry. We can trust in him. He's made a promise that he's coming back. He's made a promise that one day he's going to judge the living from the dead. He's going to keep his promises. History shows us he has, and therefore he will. God always keeps his promises. So if God's going to keep his promises, do you trust him? I mean, do, you, do, you, do you turn over the reins of your life and trust him every day? This God who keeps his promises, do you trust him? I like the story about old Uncle Oscar who was going to take his first airplane ride and he was scared to death. His friends and family saw him off, and on the, when, they came, when he came back a week later, and said, did you enjoy the flight? Well, said old Uncle Oscar, wasn't as bad as I thought it might be, but I'll tell you this, I never put all my weight down on the seat. Didn't trust it. Like it made a difference. You trust him? Here your life you're holding back from the Savior? You're saying you can have this, this, and this, but you're not going to touch this? You, you, you can take this area, but not my marriage. You can take this area, not my kids. You can take this area, not my money. You can take this area, not my sin. Secret sin, whatever that is. God keeps his promises. He can be trusted. Second application here. Hostility to the gospel is real. You see it then, you see it now. We live in a world where people look at us as believers in Jesus who believe in things like the resurrection and think we're stupid. In a scientific world, they look at us and say, you really believe a dead man can rise? And so the resurrection is denied. It's denied not only by those outside of the church, it's denied by those inside the church. Terry, if you go to the next slide for me. This is uh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs says, I'm about 50-50 on believing in God. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. I'd like to think that something survives after you die. 
Hey, it's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience, maybe a little wisdom, it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness endures, your consciousness endures. On the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off switch. Click, and you're gone. Maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. I read Isaacson's biography on jobs. If you haven't read it, it's yay thick. It's a great story. He's one of the most creative minds of our world during his time. But if you read that story, you find that he never came to faith in a living Savior. 50-50 if I believe in God. You come to the end of the story, you read his belief in Buddhism and transcendentalism, and never faith in Jesus. People oppose the gospel then, they oppose the gospel now. It comes at an eternal price. Hostility to the gospel is very real. Don't be surprised when you share the gospel with folks and they reject it. We are quickly becoming a post-Christian nation. Uh, it will be like Europe one day. In fact, we are now. You go, to, you go to most of the downtown churches in America, they were once thriving places and now they're not. Now they're not. Yet you go to Europe, we've had the privilege to go there several times on missions trips. And when you go to Europe, it's interesting to me, I, I love history and so I love to see these grand cathedrals during the week, you pay to go in, you see the architecture, and it's a museum. If you go on Sundays, they're free to get in, and they're mausoleums. They're dead. There's nobody there. That's what's happened in America. Same thing. Same thing. Most of our communities, you go to downtown churches. The old churches built in the third 20s, 30s, and 40s. Most of them are empty. And beautiful architecture, beautiful places but spiritually dead. Don't be surprised when people you share the gospel with reject the truth. It's going to happen. But keep sharing. When they reject, you keep sharing. And it's so simple. It's so simple. Alexander McLaren was a preacher in the 1800s in uh, Britain. And he had a dear friend who he grew up with who was a skeptic, never trusted Christ. And so he invited his friend to attend the Baptist church he preached in. They had several hundred people, about, probably about the size of TBC in a single service. And as he told his friend, he was going to be preaching four consecutive Sundays on the main tenets, the truth of Christianity. And he invited him to come and listen those four Sundays, and his friend agreed to come. On the final Sunday, his friend walked down the aisle professing his faith in Christ, asking to join the church. In front of the whole congregation, McLaren, who was ecstatic, could not resist the impulse. And so he said, which of my four sermons, my friend, is it that brought you to faith in Jesus? His friend, the skeptic, looked at him and said, Alexander, we've been friends for many years. Your sermons were indeed helpful. But last Sunday on my way out of your church, as I was walking down the steps, there was an elderly lady and the walk was slippery from the rain. And so I took her hand, her arm rather, and I helped her down the steps. And when we got to the bottom of the steps on the sidewalk, she looked at me. She looked up at my face and she said, Sir, I don't recognize you. I wonder if you know my Savior, Jesus Christ, my friend. He's everything to me. I would that you would know him. And McLaren's friend turned to him and he said, The joy of seeing that dear lady's face when she talked about Jesus made him irresistible to me. That's simple. 
Hey, let me tell you about my friend Jesus. Let, let, let me tell you what he's done for me. And if you don't know him, I, I, I hope one day you will. And a skeptic comes to faith in the Savior because a dear old lady talked about her friend, the one she loves, Jesus. There will be hostility to the gospel, but don't stop sharing. There will be those who reject the gospel, but don't stop telling because our work is unfinished. So Paul stands before Agrippa. He stands before Agrippa and he makes a defense. His defense is found in chapter 26. Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made a defense. Now, when you read the word of God, you've got to think about, well, how would somebody know to write he stretched out his hand? Well, Luke is the author, and if he says he stretched out his hand, that means Luke must have been there, right? I mean, this is a first-hand account. So there's several things you can observe from this section. One is it's an eyewitness account by Luke himself. Secondly, when you read all of chapter 26, which we don't have time to do, you see this is not about Paul defending himself. It's about Paul defending the gospel. And what you see here is his message is directed towards Agrippa. In fact, look at verse 2. In regard to all these things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa. And so Paul directly addressed Agrippa in verse 2. He directly addressed Agrippa in, in, in verse 27. Look at verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then when you look at Paul in, in verse 7, he says, uh, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, they earnestly serve God in his day for this hope, O king. And then at verse 13, at midday, O king. Paul's address is King Agrippa. Paul, I can guarantee you in this address, Paul doesn't take his eyes off Agrippa. I don't know how many times over the years I've gotten emails, phone calls, or you've talked to me in the hallway and said, you know, Gary, the whole time you preached that message, you never took your eye off of me. You used to say eyes, now you say I. <laughs> you never took your eye off of me. Well, I don't have a thousand eyes, obviously. And I can't look at all of you all the time. But I guarantee you, Paul never took his eye off Agrippa. O king, O king, Agrippa, Agrippa. He is face-to-face with the king. He's not going to let him go. He's going to talk about Jesus. He's going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, if you drop down to, to verse 22, he says, And so having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying to great and small, stating nothing that the, what Moses and the prophets said was going to take place, that Christ suffered, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should proclaim. we should be first to proclaim light both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. He said, I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection. These people don't. And because of the resurrection, I'm here. The resurrection is the watershed event in all of human history. The resurrection is why we're here. The resurrection is why Christianity is true. Yet there are those that deny the resurrection. I I mean, look at this. To say the resurrection is essential doesn't mean if someone were to discover a tomb, would Jesus remain in it, that the entire empire, the entire enterprise would not come crashing down. Really? The, the, the enterprise of Christianity would come crashing down. Paul himself says this in 1 Corinthians 15.4 or 15.7. If, if Christ is not resurrected, our faith is in vain. This person says the truth is that we don't know what happened to Jesus after his death. Any more than we can know what will happen to us. Now, before you switch slides on me, who do you think said that? She switched slides on me. <laughs> now you can switch slides on me, Terry. Go ahead. 
Look who said those words. An Episcopalian bishop in Washington, D.C. What we do know from these stories is how Jesus' followers experienced his resurrection. What we know is how we experience the resurrection. We don't know for sure he's resurrected, but you can experience somehow existentially the resurrection. Paul says if Christ is not resurrected, our faith is in vain. The resurrection is the watershed event of human history. It's what makes Christianity true, what proves that Jesus is the Son of God, and without the resurrection, we'd be better off having brunch somewhere right now. If the resurrection is not true, Christianity is not historical. It's a hoax. It's a lie from the pit of hell. But if Christ is resurrected, everything is changed. And so what we find after that are two responses. We see the response of Festus, and we receive the response of Agrippa. We see the response of Festus. I read, to this, read this to you earlier in verse 24. He hears about the resurrection, and he looks at Paul, and he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. He says it with a loud voice. Paul, your great learning is driving you mad. Paul, you've been in a cell for two years studying and learning more, and you're crazy if you think a dead man can walk, if a dead man can talk. Paul, you're absolutely insane. By the way, Jesus' family said the same thing about him in the book of Mark. Actually, in all four of the Gospels, that he's a madman. Paul, you believe in the resurrection, you're crazy. And there are a lot of people like Festus. They deny the resurrection. They think people like us are crazy. And they end up cast into a crisis eternity. And then there are people like Agrippa. He, he says, the king knows, verse 26, these matters. I speak to him with confidence. I'm persuaded none of these things escape his notice. This is not something done in a corner. This is not secret stuff. King Agrippa, you believe in the prophets? I know you do. And Agrippa's heart is beating out of his chest. He's confronted with the gospel mano imano. Paul looks at him and says, Agrippa, do you believe? Do you believe this? Do you believe in the resurrection? And Agrippa's response is, in a short time, you'll persuade me to become a Christian. In a short time, Paul, I'm going to believe. In a short time, this is going to happen. And we see the response to the gospel. The responses to the gospel. The response of Festus and the response of Agrippa. Agrippa says, I'm almost persuaded. There's a guy named Philip Bliss who many years ago wrote a, what became an old hymn. These are the words to that hymn. It's based upon this section. Almost persuaded, now to believe. Almost persuaded, Christ to receive. Seems now my soul to say, go spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on the alcohol. In the last verse, almost persuaded, harvest is past. Almost persuaded, doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail, almost is but to fail. Sad, sad, the bitter wail. Almost, but lost. Almost. You hear the gospel, your heart beats out of your chest. You know you need to trust Christ for the first time. You're almost persuaded, but you don't. Some of you are like Festus. You're saying, this is nuts. I don't buy it. Some of you are in the cusp of trusting Jesus right now for the first time. You're a gripper. You're almost persuaded. Would you today 
place your faith in the living God and accept Jesus Christ and the forgiveness he offers so your life will be eternally changed. Don't make it about religion, as Austin said. Make it about a relationship. And God will give you a new heart and transform you as a new creature and your life will be changed forever. Two quick applications. First Peter chapter 3 says this. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. You should be able to give an account of your testimony of who Jesus is in your life whenever you're asked to. Every single kid that went through impact can do that. 160 kids you saw on the stage about six weeks ago, they can all give you a testimony of who Jesus is and share the gospel with you. Can you do that? Can you do that? Do you know Jesus, my friend? That's simple sometimes. Are you ready to make a defense? First time I went to Ukraine, I'll never forget it. Bev and I, Pavel, came, the pastor our sister church, said, uh, I'd like for you guys to come to a funeral there. An older man in our church, his daughter died, and uh, we'd like for you to come and see how we do funerals. So we thought that'd be great. So in, in, in a yard between two houses, not a funeral home, but just in a yard, you go there, there's a uh, western-shaped coffin, wooden coffin, and the, the lady's in her 40s. She died unexpectedly. She's there. And uh, the older man, they sit on stools right around the coffin, and he's there, and uh, he's probably in his 60s, I'm guessing, maybe 70s. And, and so Pablo, the pastor of our sister church, an audience of maybe 150 people, he, he preaches the funeral. We can't understand a word that's being said. It's all in Ukrainian. And then that's done, and it's like the service is over, but all of a sudden the old man calls Pavel over. And he points to a guy in the sister church who's in the congregation. And uh, Pavel walks over to him, hands him his Bible, and the guy walks up to the head of the casket or coffin, and he begins to preach. And I thought, that's pretty interesting. So we're driving or walking. I can't remember what we're doing after. I asked Pavel, I said, tell me what happened there. That's a bit unusual. He said, well, the older man saw Kolya, who's just part of the congregation at that time, and uh, Kolya's a good friend of his, and Kolya knew his daughter, so he thought Kolya should, say, should, should preach a few words at the funeral. Always being ready to make a defense. So starting next week, you know what I'm going to start doing? I'm calling you up. <laughs> Come on. I called Austin on Friday. He's a friend. I, I'm mentoring him and some other young men. I said, hey, can you give a testimony? I'll be glad to. Be glad to. Second thing. In Colossians chapter 4, it says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. That's unbelievers making the most of the opportunity. So it says, If you live your life, conduct yourself, living your life according to the gospel with wisdom towards unbelievers, you're going to have opportunities. Let your speech be seasoned with salt so that you may know how to respond to each person. It says, If you live your life for Jesus, there'll be opportunities. And so you need to pray that you'll be cognizant of those opportunities. The gospel should always be on your heart and on your mind. Paul has a chance to stand before a king and defend himself, but what he does is tell that king about Jesus. I read in the paper two weeks ago where somebody paid $1.3 million to have lunch with Warren Buffett. Did you see that? Every year Warren Buffett does it. He, he donates it all to charity. They paid $1.3 million to have lunch with him. If you were going to have lunch with Warren Buffett, what would you talk about? See, a bunch of you guys are business guys. A bunch of ladies are business ladies. You're going to talk about business. You're going to talk about stock market. You're going to talk about uh, Berkshire Hathaway. You're going to talk about how he made his billions. Billions. You talk about Jesus? Your favorite entertainer, your favorite athlete, your favorite politician, if there is one, your favorite. 
You get an opportunity to sit with them. What are you going to talk to them about? Paul comes before King and he says, let me tell you about the resurrection of Jesus, my Savior. That's the most important thing to me. And so if you know the Savior, you make the most of every opportunity because the business of the church is unfinished. And we have the privilege of literally taking that message around the world. So how could we keep silent when a world is going away? People dying every two seconds. Every two seconds. I'm sorry, every second to die. Many of them cast into crisis eternity. How can we not tell them about our Savior? Father, as the world perishes, help us not to be silent. If you're here today and almost persuaded, would you right now, quietness of your heart, say, Jesus, I want to be fully persuaded. Please be my Savior. I accept you for the forgiveness of my sin. If you're here today and you're like Festus saying it's a madman, I invite you to study the resurrection and see if it's true or not. If you know the Savior, don't keep quiet about the Savior. Tell people about your friend, Jesus, in his name.